The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. So close and yet so far away. I wonder if you've had an experience like that. So close. So close I could see it. So close I could taste it. And yet so far away. Now it's interesting as we take a look at chapters 13 and 14 in the book of Numbers, our passage today should have been the end of the book. I I think as we read through that, I, I think that's a fair conclusion to arrive at. Our passage today should have marked the end of the book of Numbers. You see, chapters 13 and 14 bring us to the edge of the promised land. And these chapters should have marked the victorious conclusion of Israel's time in the wilderness. We should be now preparing for the conquest, preparing for entry into the promised land and everything that comes with it, with all of its milk and all of its honey. But instead, it ends with the Lord commanding his people to turn around and begin a journey, a decades-long journey in the opposite direction. How does that happen? Well, we're going we're gonna to find out today, this morning, we're going to work our way through Numbers 13 and 14, start to finish, and we're going to see just how this happened, just how these so close and yet so far away events unfolded. And so we're going to take a chunk at a time. Now, you could probably break these two chapters down into smaller parts, but for our purposes today, I'm going to break it down into four. And so I'll throw the structure up on the screen for you. Chapter 13, the first 24 verses, we're going to see the spies being sent into the promised land. The spies are sent, and the spies report. Um, Secondly, the passage that Marty just read for us, we're going to read about the rebellion. The rebellion that, that followed, led by the spies, It spreads to the people. So the spies are sent. Rebellion will take us through the first half of chapter 14, verse 10. And then in chapter 13, we have the Lord promising judgment, and we see Moses interceding on behalf of the people. So we see Moses interceding in chapter 14, verse 10 through 38. And then finally, we end with still more rebellion. Rebellion again in verses 39 through 45 when God's people decide, hey, we're going to go at it alone. Let's enter into the promised land and leave God behind. And so with with each of these passages then, we're going to make an observation about the promises of God based upon the example that we have in the people of God in our passage. And so let's, let's start in then with that first passage and uh, the, the spies being sent. Now, now, our narrative begins with God's people again at the edge of the promised land. I imagine they could see it off into the distance. 
We read this, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, everyone a chief among them. And so Moses, he does just that. He sends out spies, one from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and their task is to scope out the land and report back. Scope out the land, take notes, bring those notes back. And he has some specific things that he wants them to observe. Number one, observe some things about the people. Like, are they, are they strong or are they weak? Are they few or are they many? They're to scope out the land. Is it good land or is it bad land? Is it rich land or is it poor land? Is it fruitful? Are there trees in it? These are some of the things that they're instructed to spy out and, and, and take notes about. And then lastly, the cities. Are they mere camps or are they fortified strongholds? And then he gives them one final instruction. He says, be of good courage and bring some fruit of the land. And these are the instructions that the spies are given. And so the spies, they went and they spied out the land, probably traveling at least 250 miles or so over the course of a 40-day trip. And not much is, is said yet, but as we'll find out, the, the people, for example, that they saw inhabiting the land, and when we heard this in the passage that Marty read, we, we see that they're big and they're strong and they're powerful. These, these people were, were infamous for their, for their height. And then finally, we, we read this confirming that the Lord, that the, hand, the, the, the land that the Lord had promised was indeed fruitful. This was a land that flowed with milk and honey. Verses 23 and 24 of chapter 13. And they came, that is the spies, to the valley of Eskel and cut down there a branch with a single cluster of grapes. And they carried it on a pole between two of them. And they also brought some pomegranates and figs. This place was called the Valley of Eskel because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. This brings me to my first observation from our passage today, and that is this, that there is no promise without the promise keeper. There is no promise without the promise keeper. Keeper. Let, let's go all the way back to the beginning of chapter 13 when the Lord gives his initial instruction to Moses. Notice here specifically what he says about the land of Canaan. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel, which, which I am giving to them. The text uses the present participle here, which if you're not a grammar nerd, means that it's expressing an ongoing present action. So what the Lord is saying here is not, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I might give or which I'm thinking about giving to the people of Israel. He's not saying, go scope out the land which I'll probably give to them. He says, 
Go spy out the land which I am giving to the people of Israel. He is currently, presently, right now, in the process of giving this land to his people. And so the, these words from the Lord should, should have a massive impact on how the spies view their mission, shouldn't, shouldn't they? You see, they, they were sent into the land merely to gather information and make observations. Here's what they were not sent to do. The spies were not sent to draw conclusions or make evaluations about the feasibility of the subsequent conquest of said land. They were not sent to spy the land in an effort to size up the competition and figure out whether or not they could take them in battle. You see, taking possession of the land should never have been in question. Why? Because the Lord was presently giving it over to them. That The Lord made it clear. The land that he promised to give to the people of Israel, he was giving to the people of Israel. And that, what, what we see here is that the Lord God isn't just a promise maker, but the Lord is also the great promise keeper. And so the scouting report then ultimately should have told the spies and the Israelites about more than just the promise. It should have told them about their great promise keeper. You see, when they, when they saw the fruitfulness of the land, they should have asked themselves, wow, what, what kind of God would give us such a wonderful, fruitful land such as this? And when they saw the strong and tall people in the fortified cities, they should have asked themselves how mighty and how strong and how powerful and how glorious must the Lord be that he would be able to drive out all of these enemies and welcome us into this land, allowing us to overcome them. You see, that the enormity of the obstacles, they just... It just serves as an opportunity to put the power and glory of the Lord on display. We saw this unfold in the book of Exodus, didn't we? And so I, I, I would ask you, what do God's promises to you and what do God's promises to us collectively as the people of God tell us about the character and the nature of God? I, I wonder if you've ever asked yourself that question. What does a promise that the Lord will never leave you nor forsake you, what does this promise tell you about who God is and what God is like? Despite your continuing frustrating battle against sin or idolatry or unbelief in your, in your life, what does it tell us about our God that he promises that the good work that he began in you will he will one day bring to completion. What kind of God must he be to bring about this frustrating work in you and in me to, to completion? Eliminating indwelling sin one day, making us to be like our Savior. What does it tell us about the character and nature of God 
in the promise that the, the sufferings of this present time, painful and persistent though they may be, aren't worth comparing to the glory that will one day be revealed to us. I mean, what, what kind of God could make that kind of promise? What kind of God could eclipse the suffering of the present day in your life, in my life, in the world around us with something far better, far more glorious? How good must this God be? This is what the spies should have been asking themselves. How faithful must our God be? How loving must he be? How powerful must he be? How sufficient must his grace for us be? But instead, the spies and their spying gives way to rebellion, beginning in verse 25. We arrive at the portion that that Marty read for us. You see, after 40 days of spying in the land, we're going to want to remember that number 40. It'll be significant later. The spies return to give their report. And, and it starts out positive. It starts out on a, on a good foot. It's like one of those, do you want the good news or the bad news first? Got good news and bad news, which do you want first? Well, they start with the good news. They brought back fruit with them, evidence that the land is fruitful and fertile. And they said, we came to the land which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey. This is its fruit. But that's where the good news ends. The very next word we read in verse 28 is, is what? However. However. So the land flows with milk and honey. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Again, these people were well known for their height. And so look, the land is fruitful, but it's off limits to us. It's inaccessible. And Caleb, he interjects at this point. One of the protagonists in this particular passage, along with Joshua, reassuring the spies and the people he basically says, hey, we can do this. The Lord is with us. Let's go take the land. We can absolutely do this because the power of the Lord who promised this land to us, it goes with us. But the spies, they counter Caleb with a summary that is clearly an exaggeration. They say that the land devours its inhabitants. Inhabitants which were really strong and powerful. All the people we saw in it are of great height. They got no short people in, in, in the promised land. Find that hard to believe. And then this, we were like, we were like grasshoppers to them. We were like insects to them. I mean, you should have seen it. They were towering above us. They could crush us under the soles of of their feet. And of course, when the congregation, who hasn't witnessed it with their own eyes, this is why the, the spies had such a, a critical task. When the congregation heard the report, we read that they raised a loud cry and they wept all night, wailing and weeping 
all night. And then they began to grumble and complain, something that we saw them do in the previous two chapters last week. And their, their complaining had a familiar ring to it. All the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in, the, in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Never mind that the Lord is giving this land to them. Why is he bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. What an incredible spot we have arrived at. Especially if you've recently read through the events in the book of Exodus. If you have knowledge of, of where Israel came from, out of slavery in Egypt, and, and here's what they say. Forget Moses, forget Aaron, forget Caleb, a little bit later, forget Joshua. Let's choose a new leader who will lead us back to Egypt. In other words, Let's give ourselves to slavery once again. Let's find someone to lead us back into slavery. And look, sometimes in the face of trial, in the face of doubt, in the face of seemingly unsurmountable odds, in the face of, man, that, that area of sin in your life that, that you, just, you just can't seem to wrestle free from, Slavery seems like an easier path, doesn't it? Like, can we just all be really honest about that? Isn't, isn't freedom hard sometimes? And, and isn't slavery, doesn't at least promise to be easy, to, to be better, to be more pleasurable? Giving yourself over to, to slavery uh, feels like and, and, and is the path of least resistance. And this is what the people say. They say, look, we know the way back to Egypt. Let's find someone to lead us there and, and we'll just finish out our days there as slaves. Well, Caleb is joined now by Joshua making a last-ditch effort to reason with the people and to turn this thing around. And Caleb and Joshua's words bring us to the second observation that I want to make from our passage. And the observation is this, there is no promise without faith in the promise keeper. We said before, there's, there's no promise without the promise keeper. Now we see there's no promise without faith in the promise keeper. And as, as I read their words to the people, pay attention to the themes of faith and fear. Two themes that go very much hand in hand. And so they plead with the people in this way. They say the land in which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, and he does, by the way, he will bring us into the land and give it to us. Notice what they don't say. They, they don't say that he will bring us into the land and we can take it. 
will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Trust and fear the Lord. And do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. In other words, they have been set up as dominoes for our defeat. They have been set up for us to devour in battle. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And so Caleb and Joshua plead with the people, saying, the Lord is on our side, not theirs. The Lord is with us, not with them. The Lord will protect us. He won't protect them. The Lord is our strength. He's not their strength. The Lord will give us victory, not them victory. Trust the Lord, Israel. Think about it. Think about how far he brought us. The Egyptians couldn't stop him. Pharaoh couldn't stop him. How then could these people thwart his plans? Fear the Lord, Israel. Don't fear man. They sound like Paul in Romans 8 when he says, what shall we say then to these things? For God is for us. If, if, if God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And so let's, let's remember together, let's remember just, just where these people came from. Remember, they were slaves in Egypt. This generation had a front row seat not only to the oppression of the Egyptians, but also to the faithfulness and the power of the Lord who led them out of this oppression. It was the Lord who heard their cry for rescue from slavery and remembered his covenant with them. It was the Lord who put his power on display for them and the Egyptians to behold. It was the Lord who turned water into blood. It was the Lord who brought about the plague of frogs. It was the Lord who made the dust to be like gnats and the gnats to be like dust. It was the Lord who brought about the swarm of, of flies. It was the Lord who struck down the livestock and brought the hail and the locusts and the darkness. It was the Lord who struck down every firstborn in Egypt from those households were, who which were not marked by the blood of the Lamb. It was the Lord who parted the Red Sea, allowing his people to cross on dry ground, only to bring the waters crashing down again upon the heads of the Egyptians, wiping them out completely. It was the Lord who led them and guide them, guided them up to this point through the desert by pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. And every single day, let us not forget that they eat by way of a miracle as manna rains down from heaven, from God. I mean, think about 
everything this generation has seen. Think about everything that the Lord has done for them, all the fulfilled promises, all the displays of might and power, making his glory known over and over and over again. They have every reason to fear the Lord. They have every reason to trust the Lord, but instead they fear the inhabitants of the land. And in doing so, they're not just rejecting the Lord's promise to give them the land. They're not just rejecting the leaders that the Lord has placed over them to lead them into the land, but they're rejecting the Lord himself. Because either he's not faithful or trustworthy to keep his promise, or he's impotent, not strong and powerful enough to keep his promise in the face of this new opposition. Brothers and sisters, this is rebellion. This is rebellion. And I wonder, in light of all of the things that the Lord has done for you and for me, in light of his faithfulness displayed throughout the ages, throughout your life and mine, the countless ways that he's, he's put his faithfulness on display for us. I wonder if you and I aren't tempted to doubt God in the same way. I wonder if you're ever tempted to throw your hands in the air and to say, you know what? Maybe I should just go back to Egypt. I don't think the Lord's going to be able to pull this one off. Brother, sister, let let me ask you this. As you make your own journey through this wilderness of life, do you have faith in the Lord that he will preserve you in and through the many battles that you will face? Maybe in the midst of of the battle that that you're embroiled in right now, even as as you sit here today, in, in, in your battle against sin, Do you believe that he is going to see you through? Look, I've I've talked to men who I hope will join us in that men's reading group in October who I think are tempted to answer that question by saying no. Do you have faith that the Lord will preserve you in your battle against doubt? In the midst of, of trial and loss and suffering, and grief, seasons of suffering and grief that begin as as seasons that are days long and, and become seasons that are weeks long and they give way to seasons that are months long and years long. And do you trust that the Lord is gonna see you through that season? Or are you tempted to say, I don't know, maybe we should just give up and go back to Egypt because I don't believe he can or I don't believe that he will. Two pillars. He's, he's already proven himself to be faithful. He's proven himself to be mighty to save us over and over and over again. Hasn't he already sent a son out of love to rescue us? And didn't Jesus die a substitutionary death on the cross for us? 
Didn't he rise again three days later for us? Didn't he ascend into heaven to be seated at the right hand of the Father and to send his spirit to live in us and to empower us on our journey through the wilderness? Didn't he pursue us with his irresistible grace and overflowing mercy? Didn't he unite us together with his son by faith and adopt us? So then, why, why would we doubt his promise to preserve and persevere us in faith? Why would we doubt that he can sustain us through trial and suffering and doubts and questions and sickness and depression? Why would we doubt that he'll empower us in our battle against sin, that, that he'll transform us one, from one degree of glory to the next? Why would we doubt that we'll one day worship Jesus free from sin, free from struggle, free from suffering in the promised land of the new heavens and the new earth? Surely he who has promised us these things is faithful to bring them about. But, the people doubted. And in their doubt, they rejected their God and rebelled against him and the leaders that he had set over them. And that brings us then to Moses' intercession. See, despite their best efforts, Caleb and Joshua's words fell on deaf ears. And, and we read in, in uh, verse 10 that they were actually preparing to stone them to death, the people were. They were going to stone them to death right before they chose new leaders. And they're interrupted, fortunately, by this. The end of verse 10, but the glory of the Lord appealed at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And this is what the Lord said to Moses. How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among, among them? And we've, we've rehearsed some of these. I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them. I will make of you a greater nation and mightier than they. In other words, Moses lets you and I start over. Let's strike them down. Let's wipe the slate clean. And let's make a, a better, uh, let's make a people better and stronger. What does people, or what does Moses do? He intercedes for the people of Israel, as we've seen him do before, pleading on their behalf before the Lord. And I want to read Moses' words in their entirety because they're pretty incredible. It's a pretty good intercessory prayer. We could easily spend an entire sermon on this chunk of the text alone. It's a great example of praying in accordance with God's will. Pastor Todd and I were just talking about that the other day. It's what a, a great example this is. Two things I want you to pay attention to as I read this. Number one, Moses prays in a manner that is oriented around God's glory. Moses is squarely focused, not in his own well-being, not on his own glory or the glory of this people, but, but on the Lord's glory. And secondly, Moses appeals directly to the character of God. And here it is. Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, 
This is on the heels of, of the Lord saying, hey, let's start over. It says, then the, Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. People are going to talk, Lord. The Egyptians are going to talk. They know where we came from. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them. And you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day, and a pillar of fire by night. Now if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, it is because of the Lord, it, or it, rather it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give to them that he has killed them in the wilderness. That's the Lord's insufficiency, that's why. And now, Please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You see, the power of God isn't just displayed as he triumphs over enemies, but also as he extends grace and forgiveness to his people. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and to the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. The Lord, he responds graciously and mercifully to Moses' prayer. He forgives the Israelites, at least in part, and doesn't bring immediate destruction. That is, except for the spies, those who brought the initial report, all 12, well, 10 of them, except for Caleb and Joshua, we read, died in plague before the Lord. And so the Lord, he relents. He doesn't strike these people down in the wilderness but look, he, he may have had mercy on Israel, but that doesn't mean that they escaped all the consequences for their sin and for their faithlessness. Because the Lord follows saying, but truly as I live and as, all the, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these 10 times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. Translation, only Caleb and Joshua, because they didn't join the people in their rebellion against the Lord, will live to see the fulfillment of God's promise to his people. Only Caleb and Joshua will enter into the promised land. And now, the census that we began the book of Numbers with takes on completely new meaning. Once account of all those in Israel who would go to war in the conquest of the promised land that the Lord was giving to his people, it is now a record of all the Israelites aged 20 and higher. By the way, raise your hand if you're in the room right now and you're 20 or older. 
This is now a record of all the Israelites, 20 years of age and older, who would be destined to die in the wilderness, never to see the promised land with their own eyes. That's because Israel would wander the desert for 40 years until everyone from this generation, 20 and above, would, would die, would fall dead in the desert. One year for every day that the spies were spying in the land. This brings us to our observation from, from this section of the text, and that is this. There is no promise without a mediator. There is no promise without a mediator. You see, without Moses interceding on behalf of Israel, they never would have entered into the promised land, not even 40 years later. They would have been dis disinherited and struck down in the wilderness. I think all of them, most likely. But fortunately, Moses' intercession allowed them to avoid immediate destruction following their rebellion. The subsequent generation would be preserved. But look, something that we have to note here, and this is kind of a somber it's kind of a somber thing that's happening right here because uh, despite Moses' intercession, like not even Moses was able to secure their passage into the promised land. And let's be honest, Moses himself, as their mediator, as their intercessor, he wasn't without his faults either. Remember last week we saw him joining in on the complaining. And so while it, it, it was true for God's people here and then that they would not enter the land without a mediator, Moses here points us forward and anticipates a better mediator. As our mediator, intercessor, and advocate before God, Jesus does for us what Moses could never do for the Israelites in the desert. You see, he doesn't just save us from sure destruction because of our own sin and rebellion. By way of his own righteousness and worthiness, which is counted to us, he secures every spiritual force in the heavenly places. And he makes us worthy to one day enter into the promised land of his consummated kingdom. In his first letter to Timothy, Paul writes, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. You need a mediator. And I need a mediator. And there's only one that will do there's only one who can get the job done. And so if you're sitting here today and you've not trusted in Christ as your mediator, then this is a great place to start. This is where you must start because there is no promise of eternal peace and joy without trusting in Christ as Savior and mediator. Only death, only destruction, eternal death. And eternal destruction. Well, this brings us then to the final portion of our passage this morning, where we see yet 
another rebellion. Now in that last chunk, we saw that the Lord commanded his people to turn their backs on the promised land and head back out into the wilderness. So what did this people decide to do? They decided to go into the promised land and to fight. This time without the Lord's help at all. And it's a pretty incredible move. It's a pretty bold move, I think, uh, because remember, we started chapter 13 out with the spies giving a report and God's people being afraid to enter into the land, even with God's help. And now they, were, they are so emboldened, so puffed up in their own pride, they don't, the, the, the pride of their rebellion, that they decide, hey, we're going to do this on our own. What they've decided to do is to take hold of the blessings of God apart from the presence of God himself. And so Moses, he once again speaks up and tries to warn them. He says, for there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword. Because you have turned your back from following the Lord, the Lord will not be with you. He's making sure they understand the implications of the judgment that the Lord has just pronounced again against them. But they presume to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, nor Moses departed out of the camp. And what is the ark symbolic of? But the very presence of God. And we're told, this is how chapter 14 ends, that the Amalekites and the Canaanites came down and defeated them. Brothers and sisters, there is no promise without the presence of the promise keeper. You see, you can't separate the presence of God from the promises of God. That's the entire point of the promise. It's not just a sweet plot of land. The promised land is where the people of God will go to dwell with their great promise keeper. The presence of God is the entire point of the land. It's where they're going to dwell with him. And so if you're sitting here today and you have this vision of what heaven will one day be like in its void of Jesus, I just want to, I just want to propose that like your, your vision of what, of what paradise is going to look like is, is, is flawed. It's, it's skewed. You can't separate the blessings of God from God himself and from his presence. And so the, the presence of God is everything to the people of God. This is the very thing that sets us apart from everyone else in the world. This is the very th- thing that set the Israelites apart from every other nation around them. The presence of God. God is with us. God dwells in us through his spirit. And so this is why when the conquest finally does happen, 40 years later, after this generation has passed away in Joshua 1.9, the Lord tells his people, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be displayed. Why? For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And we have the same promise, don't we? Matthew 28, the Lord gives his disciples a great commission. 
It's a big calling. Go make disciples of all nations. Baptize and teach them. And then he, he says this, behold, what? I am with you. I am with you to the end of the age. And so, two pillars. Let me recap. There is no promise without the promise keeper. And Jesus is our great promise keeper. In Jesus, all God's promises find their yes and amen. There is no promise without faith in the promise keeper. It's because all of God's promises, all of his blessings are, released, are, are received by grace through faith in Jesus. And there is no promise without a mediator. All God's promises are mediated by Jesus. It's because we are holy and completely unworthy of these promises. Like Israel in the wilderness, we too are guilty of rebellion. Apart from Jesus, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. But he bled and died in order to pay the price for our rebellion, something Moses could never do. And his perfect righteousness is now counted to us, enabling us to fully enter into and take hold of God's promises. And finally, there is no promise without the presence of the promise keeper. All of God's promises are enjoyed in him and with him. And that's because, look, for us, there's no good apart from him. And one day, you and I have this hope because of the great promise keeper that this journey in the wilderness will come to an end. One day the pain will end. One day the battle against sin will cease. One day we will enter into the promised land of heaven. And this is the promise that we have. John records in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, pay attention to what the voice says. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Presence. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Brothers and sisters, this is a promise that the great promise keeper has made. Surely he's faithful and powerful to bring it about. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I, I confess that uh, I can identify with your people in the wilderness, standing on the very edge of fulfillment of this promise of land. 
and still being filled with fear and terror and doubt and pride and arrogance and rebellion. And Lord, I suspect that my brothers and sisters here maybe can as well. Lord, thank you that you are our great promise maker and that you are our great promise keeper. Thank you, Lord, that your faithfulness is steadfast when ours is not. Thank you for Jesus sending him to pursue us in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension as our mediator. Thank you that his blood was spilled in order for our rebellion to be forgiven. And Lord, thank you that in him, through faith in him, we have the hope of the fulfillment of all of your promises. We have the hope of the promised land of heaven, eternity with you. Lord, we long for this day, and we pray that you would preserve us to this day and persevere us to this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.